Welcome to the Halftime Huddle. I'm your host, Sarah Burt. Thanks so much to everyone who listened to Orla's episode last week and showed me some love. It's been really nice to see so many of you coming back to listen each week so far. So thank you so much for your support. It's very much appreciated. Orla's story was really well received and she was just such a joy to get to know. Now this week, there's been a lot going on in sport. My dream of coming on here to say Ash Barty had won the Aussie Open was not to be, but we did see another superwoman, Naomi Osaka, defeat Jennifer Brady. It was a pretty impressive performance. She defeated her in straight sets, and that's her second Aussie Open and her fourth Grand Slam title, so I think we'll let Osaka have this one. In some other fantastic news, which people may not have heard, Olivia Thornton has been appointed the first female CEO of Cricket ACT. We're really starting to tick off some of those first ladies and it feels good. Speaking of impressive women, let's turn to today's guest. A prolific writer, she's a journalist and author who has spent her career being an AFL expert. More recently, her passion has turned to the five-year-old game of AFLW penning a book about the inaugural season and working across Channel 7, podcasting and print to educate and drive change for women in sport. She has been a real inspiration to myself and I know many other journalists and I just have to say that speaking to her has been an absolute career highlight. The irony here is that I continue to talk about how awesome she is, but I'm still making you listen to me. So I'll head off. Here is Samantha Lane. Sarah, it's a real delight to meet you. We're on Zoom and I think it's okay in this day and age to kind of say that that's how we're meeting and thank you for having me on your show. What I do for a living, goodness me, it takes a few years to kind of roll around how you want to say it, what's the shortest and most succinct and accurate way to say it. I think really at the heart of the matter for me is that I'm a storyteller. I was a journalist at the age for 10 or 12 years. I started on a little TV show when I was straight out of uni, um, which still kind of makes my brain burst when I think about all the crazy hairdos I went through in public in that respect, talking footy on a Saturday night on before <laughs> the game, sitting next to some larrikins in Dave Hughes and Peter Hellier and co. And, and then I decided to take a voluntary redundancy from the age when they came up, I think for the third or second time. And the reason I did that the impetus was, I think what I just describe as a calling. And that was to take a step further in terms of the writing and storytelling that I wanted to do. And that was around what felt like my biggest passion at that point and that is the birth of the AFL Women's League. And very luckily, Penguin offered me a book deal and it allowed me to essentially apply for a redundancy, get a redundancy, um, burrow down, write a book, and then it really changed my working life where I was not only, um, I guess, writing about this, I was talking about it, and we'll get to this later, but um, I'm so happy that this is an Australian story, but it has global relevance. And actually that culminated in one of the best days of my life in November 2019 when I was invited to speak under the Eiffel Tower full of people that wanted to hear about the birth of AFLW in Paris. Uh, they 
were pumped up about the Women's World Cup that they'd just hosted. And so there I was talking about AFLW in um, the, the beautiful city of Paris. On the topic of your book, Raw, it is about the inaugural season of AFLW. What a huge achievement, but also I imagine a fair bit of pressure goes into having to record such a fantastic moment in history and something that people are always going to look back on and read. And, and for us living it, we knew it was something special, but in years to come, it is going to be a real piece of history. How did you approach that sort of pressure? Thank you. The first 67 pages of Raw is essentially my attempt at that time. Uh, it was 2017 that I spent writing it. It was my attempt to sum up how we had got to the point of having AFLW, uh, the roadblocks that existed, ranging from sexism, homophobia, and a whole lot of discrimination and bias, quite aside from that, a whole lot of vilification, terrible treatment and cultural um, toxicity, actually, that existed and thrived in football and sporting settings in this country that was simply holding women back, despite the fact that they deserved a, a playing field just as boys and men did. So with that preamble, you're probably getting the feeling that knowing that and having researched it uh, in the later part of my uh, writing career at The Age, I felt an enormous amount of pressure, not in terms of getting, uh, you know, the perfect piece of uh, writing as such, more so to do justice to the stories of these original humble warriors, as I call them, who had fought, who had been so resilient and who had really either stood up against or just um, stood tall despite the discrimination that they'd experienced. That includes the likes of the great Debbie Lee, who is the second or third woman to ever make uh, the AFL Hall of Fame. She's certainly the first woman footballer to ever uh, make the AFL Hall of Fame and she only won that honour last year. Debbie Lee uh, was, you know, experienced terrible um, homophobic and sexist remarks just simply trying to, to play footy and lead football, women's football. Sam Moston, who was the first woman commissioner at the AFL, encountered all sorts of sort of more nuanced but definitely uh, sexist behaviour and discrimination in her path to advocating for, for women's football. Jan Cooper, who was the first woman to be the football uh, female football development officer, they called it, um, at the AFL. She encountered all sorts of things. And there are a whole lot of other women and men besides that. Shiloh Curtis was another who really emerged to me as an early driver um, behind the scenes who, you know, isn't necessarily a household name, although she's now a brilliant commentator on AFLW. But for so many years, these were the the quiet, almost faceless women um, who were championing women's football. So my sense of pressure came from telling their stories and all the forebears before them who had fought and um, really are the reason that AFLW existed. I just wanted to do the very best job I could to, to help tell some of their stories without it being uh, an entire novel in itself because I wanted to tell the joyful um, wonderful stories of 
Darcy Vessio, Taylor Harris, Sarah Perkins, Daisy Pierce, and others who fill the book? Well, absolutely. That was going to be a question that I was going to ask you because it can be really difficult to feel so much anger, but also to have that motivation to really support the sport and and be so excited about where it's headed. But it's also so frustrating to think that if women had been allowed to play for the same amount of time as men, that we could already be in the same position. I suppose what I wanted to ask you was how much anger do you think that we need to feel about finding that equality in the sport as opposed to the motivation or the appreciation that we now have a league in it and it's developing? Do you think that the anger is productive? Yes, I think anger can be really useful uh, because what it does, I suppose, is galvanise people uh, in a movement of any nature to do something productive and be proactive. I don't think anger serves a purpose beyond uh, the, um, you know, catalyzing a movement. Then I think you need to get constructive. You can waste hours and hours um, that accumulate into Uh, days and months and years if you really add them up of sitting around tables sharing stories that make you angry about discrimination angry about sexism homophobia and all the other things we've talked about but really that solves nothing and I think something I've learned is that there really is an art and I look to the leaders in the world that I most want to be like or want to follow and they are excellent communicators when it comes to issues that make a whole lot of people mobilized and angry the reason they're excellent is because they don't divide they galvanize they get people to understand they educate and they calmly and so rationally that you can't even argue with it lay out a case and i think while uh anger may have helped gather people that ultimately helped make AFLW happen, and we're only talking about AFLW here and now for the purposes of this, Um, anger very much had to switch into action mode. What are we going to do? Who is going to lead it? And now that AFLW exists, um, I suppose I've, um, having written the book and been asked to talk about it and the, the issues that extend way beyond sport, because this is a movement bigger than sport it's about business it's about culture it's about Australia it's about the world actually it's about the gender pay gap it's about domestic violence why that is the biggest issue in our country you have to find a way I think if you want to be effective of actually talking to everyone because the worst thing that can happen if you are trying to have a big conversation that requires everyone is to have ears closed or to have eyes glaze over you need ears to be open, minds to be open, and then if you can just speak rationally, uh, carefully, and sometimes cleverly, um, I think you have the best shot at recruiting more champions of change. How did you manage to dig out the deeply personal stories that you did from the women in that book? It was an incredible experience, quite aside from writing the book itself in, you know, uh, often very focused way and um, around the clock and probably going a bit bonkers at, at times, to be honest, to meet deadlines. The joy for me, the greatest joy was sitting down with the people uh, who were the storytellers and the sharers of their deeply personal experiences. And as I mentioned, that includes the great Debbie Lee, Sam Mostyn, a wonderful, I would call whistleblower, Jane Holman, who was an AFL executive uh, at one point, and she 
really did something that not many people do. And in Raw, she shared a story of how uh, in uh, her portrayal of a one-time very big AFL meeting, actually Andrew Dimitriou, who was the CEO at the time of the AFL, simply shut down and showed in her mind what was great disdain for women playing footy in any way, shape or form. He, I must say, on that point, denied uh, Jane Holman's portrayal, but um, I thought Jane was very brave to do something that was counterculture and share something that she certainly found offensive and still does to this day in the pages and for the purposes of Raw. Uh, in terms of your question and how that kind of sharing comes about, I hope, uh, although you would probably have to ask the people who did share their stories, be they those uh, pioneers who were making headway so that AFLW could happen, or be they the players like Taylor Harris, like Darcy Vessio, like Sarah Perkins, like Beck Goddard, who said for the very first time in black and white that she is uh, partnered with a woman and spoke about homophobia um, that she has experienced and explained that, in fact, the biggest, uh, most powerful homophobic force in her life early days had actually been herself. I think the reason that these kind of conversations happened and, and are now written in, in pages in print forevermore is because of a trust that was established. Everyone who participated uh, in terms of their storytelling and sharing in Raw, and there are so many voices, I can't even name them all, they, I think, felt that putting their stories down was, was for a greater good. It certainly wasn't about um, making a gazillion dollars from a book because, uh, unfortunately, that's just not the reality, although we would love to turn it into a film or something, a doco one day, like if anyone's calling Amazon, hello, anybody. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but, but, um, but it really was for the greater good of they wished, most of the people in the pages of Raw, they wished that they could have read or heard the stories that they were sharing because if they had had examples like themselves, it might have made their, their trips through to where they are now a little bit easier, a bit more supported. Particularly as someone who has covered men's and women's football, it sounds like the cultural aspect of AFLW, the homophobia, the sexism is so intertwined in the launching of the AFLW competition that it's really quite hard to separate the two. And that's, I suppose, why we're seeing the inaugural Indigenous round this year and, and the Pride round. All of those sort of things are so, so important and they're equally as important as seeing that first bounce on the day because it's the way that it's been launched is, you know, so many people are talking about their sexuality. So many people are talking about the fact that they weren't allowed to play when their brothers were. What I wanted to ask from you was, having seen the players like Daisy Pearce and Taylor Harris, Erin Phillips, Beck Goddard, you've seen them all come through from day dot and you've been on that journey with them and then you've written this beautiful story about their journey. Do you still see it as the same journey for women that are coming through the draft now? Have you seen a change in the approach to the whole thing? Yes, uh, thankfully, yes. And that's because the AFL women's cohort, the playing cohort, arrived in this most refreshing, brilliant way. Uh, they arrived as themselves and they were unafraid to just be them. And that involves what they do in their spare time, the way they prepare for games, the way they live their lives, uh, be it 
partnered, unpartnered, uh, whatever, uh, and with whoever, quite frankly. And what it did was just shine such a, a light of contrast on the really homogenous uh, setting and I think um, narrative that we tend to see in, in men's AFL. Um, that is a culture I would describe now of um, of uniform behaviour because it's it, it really rails against anyone who is different typically and if someone is different, um, that's sort of chipped off them a bit. Whereas in women's footy, uh, the, the most distinctive or one of the most distinctive traits of it, I think, is that everybody is welcome. Everybody. Now, if you're a fake, um, you will be smoked out. And that is something I also know that women's, um, women, women footballers are expert at doing. If a coach is standing up there, um, you know, and they don't quite buy into the coach's message, they, they keep asking questions in a way that I'm told by coaches, men's players simply do not do. Um, so there are so many elements to this, but uh, ultimately I think I look at the AFL women's playing cohort and I see a model uh, group of athletes who are more free to be themselves, to speak their minds and do their thing. I think if anything, uh, men's AFL players would would look there and say, "Goodness me, what is um, what is the pervading um, message around our culture that that constrains us in the way that it seems to still?" Absolutely, and I wonder if it's really brought that awareness to them as well, because there is such a stark contrast now. And before that, there was nothing to compare it to. Uh, you've said before yes. that you write, talk, and feel for a living. I really, really loved that, and I think the point that you feel really got me. And I just think I'd love you to explain how important you think it is to feel empathy for the people's stories that you are telling. Thank you. I, I, I don't think Sarah. It also, I don't think it makes me the best deadline journalist at times because I tend to really uh, feel things so much when I'm telling or helping to tell someone's story that I kind of really do well I can really turn myself inside out about wanting to represent them and what they're what my sense is of what they're trying to say so faithfully and honestly um, so I guess that would be my way of explaining how I feel, um, because I guess it is ultimately that, that, uh, measure of can you lay in bed at night sleeping straight and whether you're covering a very hot news issue, uh, in the AFL or the Olympics or in politics for that matter, as a journalist, uh, with a, with a masthead, uh, that employs you like Fairfax or like reporting on Channel 7 or Channel 10 or the ABC. Um, you know, I guess if you're really taking that sense of responsibility seriously, you do stress about every word, about every fact as you are presenting it. And so I think when I, I say I um, feel for a living, uh, that's what I'm speaking about. It doesn't, yeah, as I say, it, it probably means I write way too many drafts, agonise over sentences where others are much more uh, just sort of <laughs> better at letting it go. But maybe I'm getting a little bit more efficient now. Who knows? It sounds like you would have had a lot of late nights with that sort of agony. <laughs> oh, terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
On that, your father is a very, very successful sports broadcaster as well and you followed his path but it would appear that growing up you would have seen him reporting mainly on men's sport and that's certainly where you started out with the AFL men's competition and particularly when your father covered cricket, I'm sure there wasn't a, a huge amount of coverage of women at that time either. So although you've followed in his footsteps, it would appear that your career paths have formed very different roots. How does your dad feel about the progression of your career and how has it been following in his footsteps? Mm. Yeah, he, um, I mean, he's been the greatest single influence on my career, I think it's fair to say. And I mean, it's a short version of a long story, a lifelong story, uh, perhaps for another podcast (laughs) one day. But, um, you know, the reason that I came to be so heavily influenced by dad was only by happenstance, really. Um, My mum and dad were divorced um, very early days in my life. Uh, They were great friends, but I lived with mum. She sadly passed away when I was 10. And so as a single uh, or an only child uh, with three cats and dad being a single man at that time, I moved into a house with him and suddenly, you know, both of our lives changed in a very big way. Dad was sport obsessed. Um, he, you know, his weekends were were covering uh, cricket and football and, and mine were were filled with dancing classes, you know. Um, so we it was a bit of a clash of cultures, but we, we both did our best, I think, to uh, to understand each other and what I came to really enjoy. Um, well, initially I detested going to the footy with Dad when he couldn't find someone to, to look after me because I thought it was so boring. I just didn't understand it. But what I came to enjoy at the footy was something actually that I didn't have so much at home and that was a family. Once I got confident enough to walk through the stands of Princess Park at Carlton by myself and even, you know, eventually take a thermos and um, my favourite, you know, bits of food and whatnot, I found around me a a big footy family of people uh, sharing a day uh, just outside watching sport but mostly being together. I really loved that. And then what that struck up in me was a consciousness that while I could see that 50% of the crowd at these games roughly were women and girls uh, that I couldn't see that on TV when I was watching footy with dad I couldn't hear it on the radio when I was listening to dad apart from the very occasional um, presence of Joyce Brown the wonderful and and champion Australian coach of netball um, I did see it in the pages of the age and that really is the moral of the story that I saw Caroline Wilson's name. I saw Penny Crisp's name. I saw Linda Pierce's name and I wanted to be like them. (laughs) So dad has been an incredible influence in in terms of one sort of showing me that world, uh, two showing me that I didn't have to feel intimidated by it. He certainly supported every opinion that I took away from games as we shared them as we drove home together from his day at the footy and my um, my experience at the footy. And then I guess down the track, once I did establish myself as a journalist in my own right on, um, you know, at the age, but also on radio and, and on telly, um, he has been the most trusted, um, invaluable 
sounding board uh, to me and it's something that I value as much today as as ever. Yeah, and it goes back to the aspect of feeling with your career and your success with Raw came about through you feeling things and connecting with people. So it's the common thread for you. What advice would you give to women in sport? To, if you haven't got the position that you are hoping for one day, to almost pretend that you do. So if that is broadcasting, get up some kind of voice memo app on your phone or something and just record yourself calling whatever it is you want to call or doing special comments on whatever it is you want to give special comments on. If it's being on camera, set up something in your home if you're able and record yourself and review it and maybe share it with someone that you trust and try to work on things as if you have got a job or a show or something that you want. And if it's writing, just write your bum off, like write and write and write, uh, send it to people, uh, perfect it. Uh, don't hassle people too much, like be persistent for sure, um, but be really calculated and strategic about uh, how many times you follow up, when you follow up and the way that you follow up. Again, that's that's part of being a journalist. Mostly if you're onto something hot as a journalist, people actually don't want to talk to you. And so you've got to get <laughs> quite good and, and a really thick skin about hearing no or if not no, hearing nothing. And so uh, there is there is a way of being able to just, you know, pick yourself back up and go again until you hear no. And if you do get through on the other end, if you need to have a debate about why someone should actually speak to you, well, then, you know, have it there and then. But until then, just just keep chipping away. Uh, I would also say, and I wish I'd kind of got this in my head a little bit sooner, that if you are different in the position that you are in, embrace the difference your difference is your strength I've been in settings in media where it's felt to me that my difference is a weakness somehow that me not having the same experience in sport or experiences in sport makes my opinion somehow lesser than um, the dominant uh, culture or even the, the people that I'm around or sharing space with uh, in, in a media setting. That is actually not the case. If someone has asked you to sit somewhere, to speak somewhere, to present somewhere, or to give anything somewhere, it's because they actually want your viewpoint. Now, my viewpoint is going to be very, very different to a whole lot of people in football or in sport who actually run or play sport. Now, I can confidently say that that's actually why I get asked to talk or to be present somewhere. And now I would, <laughs> I don't feel apologetic for that. I actually feel, well, goodness me, if I'm not tapping into that, I'm not doing my job. So it's about, I suppose, really finding that inner sense that that's why you're there. You don't have to uh, conform. And if that means that sometimes you're rubbing people up the wrong way or you sound different or you are different to others, well, that's actually part of it. And so coming to terms with that uh, sooner rather than later uh, will definitely hold you in good stead. Yeah, I love that. 
Speaking of differences and I suppose certain criticism, there's been a lot of conversations around some of the big names, especially namely Taylor Harris. How do you answer the critics that choose to ridicule these top tier athletes when we just don't see it really in the men's competition? I spoke about it a bit at the start of our chat, Sarah. I think it brow bashing and just, you know, hating back, so to speak, doesn't really achieve much. I think it, it then becomes a fight. It, um, it doesn't actually help uh, open minds and, and reform positions and educate. So I think the, as, as much as these moments can be emotional, I think if we contemplate the way that Taylor herself actually dealt with uh, the moment where her kick photo was uh was was objectified the way it was um so horrifically when i think about taylor doing that that press conference initially she was just so calm Mm. and so clear and impossible to argue with and what that actually reminded me of at that time was the incredible way that adam goods did precisely the same thing (laughs) after he pointed out the young girl in the crowd who had racially vilified him at the MCG that night. That press conference that Adam Goods did is something that I think everyone should watch and re-watch because if ever a leader um, had been so obvious, um, it's him. He, he wasn't hating. He was simply being rational. He was saying his piece. He was... He was describing racism, actually, and he wasn't backing down from calling it for what it was, but it was done just so effectively. And I say the same thing for Taylor Harris. And uh, in answer to your question, if I'm ever trying to um, tackle uh, contentious matters or tackle people who are, um, you know, either racist or sexist or anything erst, um, it's it's that manner that I would at least, um, at very least, try to adopt. FLX was launched at a similar time to AFLW and seemingly blew it out of the water. I know technically they weren't really competing against each other, but AFLX ended up being a bit of a flop and AFLW has just completely gone ahead in leaps and bounds. What are your thoughts on how that went down? Mm. I, I'd like to think that now in 2021, there wouldn't have even been a thought that AFLX was worth ploughing money into, (laughs) frankly, because (laughs) clearly the priority at that time and now um, should be AFL women's. Uh, So rather than dwell on the great flop that it was, because, I mean, it was spectacular and an insane (laughs) and offensive amount of money was spent on it that could have been ploughed into women's football, which uh, actually involves and recruits more than half the Australian population. So go figure. The one thing I will just say as a full stop on AFLX, because I I did challenge myself to get a a really clear view on it because, you know, I was asked about it quite a bit um, a few years ago and when the book came out, is that if AFLX was the future of football, as it was apparently Petri tested to be, why the hell did AFLX only include men? Because if you'd launched AFLX saying, hey, this is the new short form superhero, we're going to dress up and be all gangster before games and like recruit, you know, the new generation of footy fans, 
they totally failed at the first instance because AFLX was created for men's footy. So if it really was the modern new way, it definitely involved women. It didn't. And that's why no one actually talks about AFLX anymore other than to say it was a complete uh, and utter failure and waste of money. Absolutely. We get it back. Can we get it back? If AFLX is not the future of footy, where do you see the future of footy heading? My vision for footy, and it makes me smile thinking about it, is that I would love to go to a game of footy and it's at the MCG. I'm just going to put it there. Or I'll say the SCG because I live in Sydney now, but either place. And why not? Let's just say the Adelaide Oval as well. Let's go to WA. Let's go all over Australia and the Northern Territory and Tasmania where there will be an AFL uh, team, an AFL men and women's team and, and everything else to go with. I go to the footy in this uh, Nirvana state of football that I dream of and I will see multiple games. I don't care what order they're in, but certainly at my day at the footy, I will see the elite women's team play and I will see the elite men's team play and that is my new normal day at the footy. It's seeing my club represented uh, by women and men and not having crowds build between one or the other, having crowds as engaged around both. And I see the women's competition having a full fixture that is actually um, not only just a blessing for, for women and getting women and AFLW what it deserves, it's a blessing for men because it's a ridiculous fact of the AFL still that the men's fixture is unequal. Everyone plays each other you know, one and a bit times. I mean, it's it's actually insane. It makes no sense in 2021 that we still have this other than the broadcast dollar. So let's get an equal fixture where every club just plays each other once. The season, therefore, becomes shorter. So that's better for players mentally and physically. We might have a few more rounds of finals. That's really great for broadcasters. But every time that there is a football match played uh, or a football day played, it involves multiple matches and the clubs, uh, the men's clubs that are playing, the women's clubs that are playing make up this day at the footy. And of course, I want women who play in the AFL engaged as full-time professional athletes. Hey Amen. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. I'm going to say a woman. <laughs> Amen, a woman. A woman. <laughs> and just finally, Sam, what's next for you? Oh my goodness. Um, so uh, I, for now, I am a little bit COVID restricted sitting in Sydney and unable, um, given Melbourne's third lockdown, to be where I want to be, which is on the boundary, uh, doing boundary reporting for Channel 7 of AFLW broadcast. Had to sit that out last week, um, which I found very, very painful, although I did love watching the team um, call North Melbourne and Melbourne, which was such a phenomenal game. Oh, that was an amazing um, game. It was, yeah. Um, so I hope that that changes and I can and continue the the um, wonderful opportunity I get to get that front row seat to to watching AFLW progress. Uh, apart from that, um, I am doing uh, some writing on a. I, I wish I could tell you exactly what it is, but I'm writing another book, and it may 
definitely involved something that's very close to my heart, which uh, may start with AFLW and end in AFLW <laughs> um, and women's sport. Um, yeah, so look, they're probably the, the bits that I can share with you right now. Well, that all sounds very exciting and I can't wait to find out what the beginning with AFLW and ending with AFLW <laughs> book is. <laughs> I'll fill you in when I can. Another project I'm really happy to tell you about, given all the nice things that you've said about VOR, is that one of my driving motivations when it was written was to have it in front of as many eyes as possible so that the stories of, of AFL um, women's could be shared. I also know that in this day and age, there's not a whole, um, you know, lot of people that sit down and just read book after book. So I have really wanted to get raw uh, the book recorded and um, without kind of, you know, speaking too far ahead of time, I've, I've secured a really um, wonderful um, philanthropic grant from Ian Darling and the Shark Island Institute who uh, made the Adam Goods final quarter documentary and Ian and Shark Island have invested in an initial recording of Raw Project. It's going to record the first 67 pages of Raw. Uh, watch this space. Um, I'll be definitely letting you know when it happens, but um, it's going to, I hope, be a way of really forwarding um, the, the ability to share these stories, not only of the birth of AFLW, but of the incredible uh, women and men uh, who were behind the scenes peddling away to make it real. It's so exciting to make it more and more accessible to everyone. And that's the idea. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the fantastic Sam Lane. You can follow her on Instagram to keep up with what she's up to, as well as finding her book raw online and on the shelves. I'll catch you next week for another episode.